to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is the story of the man who was born blind and uh, was healed by Jesus. It's a, an incredible picture as we've been going through and seeing Jesus as he talks to the Pharisees, and we'll see some more of that. Basically, we see what happens to religion. When people become religious, so often they completely lose perspective. And, and we're going to see that here as we see the way the Pharisees lash out at this poor guy for being healed. They end up excommunicating him. The story begins in verse 1. It says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. We find out a few verses a little while later that he was out um, begging. But here he is, he was blind from birth, and his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was a typical misconception in those days that if you were born with a birth defect, either you sinned or your parents sinned. That's completely wrong. It's a complete misunderstanding of this whole world and how things work and how God does things. It's, a, it's an awful indictment, really, on God to suggest that if you have a birth defect or if you have a disease or illness, that somebody must have done something wrong. The fact is, this world is messed up because man as a whole has done plenty of wrong things. We gave control of the world over to Satan back in the Garden of Eden, and we don't need to look for any explanation other than that for why this place is messed up. But how cruel, a guy, how could he have sinned in, the, in his mother's womb in order to be born blind? And what kind of a God would say, okay, parents, you're sinning, so I'm going to make your son be blind and be a beggar for the rest of his life? It's such a warped perspective on God. But we need to be careful because like the disciples, when we are well, when we're on top of the world, it's easy for us to look down on those who are less fortunate than we are. There, there's a heritage, really, that gets credited with, with Protestants and the Protestant work ethic that says, hey, if you're doing things right, you're going to be successful. You can look at your life and your blessings and your possessions and say, God has done this because I'm a godly person or because I love God or because I worship him. If that's the case, I mean, how do you explain Mother Teresa and the way that she lived compared to Bill Gates or Hugh Hefner or Ted Turner, someone like that in the way they live? It's, it's ridiculous. It's absurd to make that connection. Now, God always makes following him worthwhile, but the payday is generally in heaven. Down here, some of us are really blessed materially and some of us aren't. Some of us are blessed with great health and some of us aren't. And it has no connection to our sin or our righteousness. The Bible says that God causes the rain to fall on the unjust and the unjust. So get it out of your head that somehow, you know, oh, because I'm a privileged person, it must be that God really loves me or I'm really good. It's easy for even America as a country to look down at some of the other countries out there and, and to say, well, of course they're, you know, really poor because look at the religion that they follow. And there may be some correlation in certain circumstances, but basically we need to be careful. God doesn't take kindly to people who take 
what he has given them and then use it as an arrogant way of judging others. And so, again, the disciples asked this question, and Jesus said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. So Jesus said, this guy isn't blind because of anybody's sin. But it's also important to realize what Jesus isn't saying is, this guy was made blind so that God can get glory. Because that isn't really the case, and it's not implied in the, in the text at all either. It's not that... God would go, let me make this guy blind for his whole life so that it'll make it a really cool miracle when I heal him later. The point is, God allows things to happen naturally in this world, but he intends to come in as the Messiah, step in supernaturally and turn things upside down. And so God was going to be glorified through it, and it would be a, an awesome thing when he would be in just a moment. But he's not saying that explains why uh, this guy was born blind. Remember, the answer is neither. It's not about that. You're missing the whole point. But Jesus says to them, understand this, I'm the light of the world. And so I step into darkness and I make a difference. It's what I do. But he didn't make the world dark so that he could step into it. He's stepping in as the light of the world in response to the fact that this world has been completely devastated and destroyed by sin. And so when he had said these things, he spit on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The word Siloam means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Amazing. Jesus spit in the dirt. Now, it's funny because people take a story like this and, and they say that there was some kind of mineral in the dirt in those days, combined with divine saliva that somehow had medicinal value. Well, I've never seen any kind of medicine, any kind of mineral, I don't care how much of a, of a herb nut you are, that you can spit in something and stick it in somebody's eyes and they can see just like that. This is ridiculous, this is a complete miracle of God. Why did he do it this way? Who knows, it's hard to say. One thing is for certain, he was trying to tick off the Pharisees because it was against the law to make clay on the Sabbath. It was also against their law to heal someone on the Sabbath. So he goes, hey, I'll mix up a little clay and I'll heal the guy. What are you going to do about it? Is basically what he, was, what, he was, uh, what he was saying and what he was doing. But interesting that with this formula, he didn't heal blind people like that again. He had all kinds of different ways. And some saw instantly. One guy he saw first kind of saw men that looked like trees. And, you know, the guy wasn't in a, on the floor of an NBA game. It was just he could kind of see. And then his vision began to improve gradually. Sometimes Jesus just touched people. Sometimes he healed them without touching them. And it's very much like man to come up with a formula. Oh, so what we... And thankfully, evangelists haven't picked up on this too much and they're not spitting in the ground and wiping it in people's eyes. Most evangelists don't want to get their hands dirty, but that's another story. The thing is, Jesus did it this way this time, but it wasn't the method that did it. It was Jesus. It was the fact that he said so. And so this man went to the pool of Siloam, the pool that 
you know, interestingly, earlier when they were celebrating the great day of the feast, the pool at Siloam is where they would go and get the water and bring it to the temple for each of the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then finally on the last, the eighth day, the great day of the feast, they would again bring that water from the pool of Siloam, the sent one, and pour it out. And it was at the point when that was happening that Jesus stood up in the great day of the feast and said, if anyone thirst, come unto me and drink. So interesting, the, the earth from which man was made the saliva, the spit, the water that would come forth from Jesus combined with rinsing in the pool of Siloam, the scent one, and this guy could see. Quite a, quite a picture. And, and so he went and did it. He came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, Yeah, it's him. Others said, No, nah, he looks like him. He has an evil twin. He said, no, it's me, I am he. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. Then they said to him, well, where is he now? He goes, I don't know. They were wondering, how did this happen? And again, arguing, they're going, yeah, it looks like him, but is it really him? In the book of Acts later, we see a lame man who was healed and people were arguing about, there's no way is this the beggar. This must be somebody who looks like him. He hired a stunt double to pull this off. And that's kind of what they're suggesting about him. Eh, it can't be him. There's no way. And when we are touched by Jesus, sometimes people have that same reaction. Or, yeah, it can't be you. It can't be real. You must be faking it. Or the idea is, Hey, a beggar can make pretty good money in those days. Maybe he's been pretending to be blind all this time. Man, we should have jumped at his face to test him first. Now look, he can see. But he didn't know. And it's interesting that Jesus healed him and didn't hit him up with a big message. Often I think we think of, well, when Jesus, he can't wait to shut the door, to close the deal, to, to force the sale. And here Jesus heals him and and takes off, and the guy's like, I don't know, a guy named Jesus, this is what he said, I was healed, I, don't, I can't explain it. And, you know, I think sometimes that we get out of line when we, we assume that God just wants to do everything right now. God likes working in someone's life at his own timing. He's going to meet up with him later and share a lot more with him. But at this point, all he did was touch him and heal him, and, and that was enough. And so the Pharisees grabbed the guy and, and, uh, and hauled him in. And it, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay, notice, and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. So some of the Pharisees said, verse 16, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Even among the Pharisees, they were going, now, wait a minute. This guy's breaking the rules. Was it the rule of the Old Testament of the Torah? No. It was the rule of their interpretation of the Old Testament. It was man-made rules. And when he broke them, they didn't know what to do. Often in the scripture, people get hung up on wondering whether or not something's of God because it doesn't happen the way they expect. The truth is, if God's working, if, if he's healing, if good things are happening, we don't need to sit and question whether or not it's, okay, is this exactly the way we think it ought to be? Does this 
does this pass our theological muster test? Um, before when there were times when the disciples ran to Jesus and said, hey, there's people over there who are preaching, but they aren't one of us. And he's like, hey, you know, if they're not against us, they're for us. Don't worry about it. They're doing good. And so you have a division between the Pharisees where some of them are saying, this is against the law. He shouldn't do this. And others are going, yeah, but the guy's healed. He made a blind man see. Can that be a bad thing? Is that something that, what do we do? Bust him, bust the guy? I mean, a blind guy can see. Jesus said in another place that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And that's important for us to remember. If our interpretation of the law leads to something that's unfair, unreasonable, unkind, if it keeps us from doing something that God wants to use, then we're misinterpreting the law. It, it's such a simple thing. The law was given for a simple purpose. And it wasn't so that we could have a way of beating people over the head. It wasn't so that we could set strict limits on what God is allowed to do. God can do whatever he wants. You know, and you don't have any place in the Bible where you see the devil healing people. He came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. If people are getting healed, don't scrutinize it, don't analyze it. You don't ever want to be on the side of those who would say, it's really better off if these people weren't healed. Now, what do you do if you see somebody going to somebody who's obviously kind of fraudulent or, and, and you're just saying, wow, people are being healed? Well, don't argue against it. Now, just between us, it may be that somebody, God just chooses to heal somebody and it has nothing to do with who was preaching at the time. It also may be that somehow within them, there's that faith that's spurred by some guy, you know, jumping around on the stage and swinging his jacket around or, you know, blowing people over. And, and for some reason, wow, that's it. It may be psychosomatic. Maybe there was something that was wrong with them that was caused by something that was, that was more emotional than actually biological. Don't worry about it. If somebody's healed, just go, hey, great, I'm glad he's healed. I'm glad it's working. I'm glad you're better. And these guys didn't see it. Instead, they looked on it as an opportunity to argue about whether or not it was okay for Jesus to do this. Jesus didn't worry about whether it was okay for him to do it or not. He just did it. And so they're having this little discussion. And, and again, they said to the blind man, verse 17, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? What's your opinion? He goes, well... He's a prophet? I don't know. The Jews didn't believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. Now they decided, and, and this is like a, this is so typical of people. In, in logic, they call this an ad hoc hypothesis, where you make up an argument in order to explain the facts that may contradict what you believe. It, it's, it's the sort of thing that you do, like for instance, if I come up with a theory, and my theory is that there are little green men inside these walls that are holding them up. Really? That's how they stand. That's how it works. And you go, come on, Dave, there's no way. I go, no, no, it, it really is true. Now prove me, prove me wrong. So you go, okay, we'll tear off some of the drywall and we'll see. So you rip off a chunk of drywall and you go, look, where are the little green men? I go, well, when they're exposed to oxygen, they turn invisible. See, People who will sit here and argue that way, there isn't anything that you can say that's going to convince them. 
They're just going to win the argument. And no matter what kind of evidence you come up with, they're going to go, well, this and this and this, well, this and this. It's like, don't even bother. And that's the way they were. They're deciding now, okay, he wasn't really blind. They didn't believe it and until they called the parents in. They thought if we bring the parents in, they'll say, no, he was never blind or we always suspected or, you know, he, he used glasses and this was a scam. So they brought the parents in and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents said, well, yeah, this is our son and he was definitely born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He's an adult, ask him. He'll speak for himself. His parents actually knew what happened, but it says they said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had decided that anybody who said Jesus is the Messiah would be excommunicated, kicked out of the synagogue. So his parents just said, I don't know, talk to him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he said, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know about that. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And that's the most powerful testimony that somebody could have. I think ultimately, it's the best testimony for our lives as well. Look, I was blind, and now I see. God's touched me. I think sometimes I've seen people who had such a powerful witness to the world when they didn't know anything. And then they began to study and learn some things and they became less effective. Because the, the attention got off of, look, I used to be blind and now I can see. I was dead and now I'm alive. The testimony now becomes some fancy philosophical, theological, prepackaged presentation that basically you're giving answers to questions that people aren't even asking. We can get too sophisticated for our own good. Years ago, there was a little gal at Calvary Costa Mesa who accepted the Lord. She'd been a Christian for two days, and some people were going out street witnessing. They said, hey, why don't you come? She goes, okay. Back then, people just go out witnessing right away. No classes or anything. They just do it. And so she went out, and she ran into a college professor, and she just told him, you know, do you know that Jesus loves you? And he said, Jesus loves you. How do you even know Jesus is alive? And she's like, huh? I just know he loves you. I know Jesus. I met him a couple days ago. And, and he started hitting her with all of these tough arguments about the validity of the scriptures and contradictions and all this sort of stuff. Put her into tears. And she finally just crying walked away from him and just said, but I know Jesus loves you. And she felt so bad, came back to church and goes, I feel like I'm a failure. I don't know if I can ever witness again. Until about two days later when this guy showed up at Calvary. And he said, you know, a girl from your church talked to me on the street corner. And I, I sat there and threw, I was so mean to her, I threw every argument at her that I could. And nothing would stop the fact that she just kept telling me that Jesus loved me. And he said, that's a love that I don't have. And that's a love that I need. And he ended up accepting the Lord. I'm convinced a lot of times we can make it way too complicated. How do you argue with somebody who says, all I know is I was blind, I met Jesus, now I can see. All I know is my life was a mess. I was going nowhere and Jesus touched me and things are looking up. Um, that's, a, that's a powerful testimony and it was for this guy. But they still wanted to argue with him. And uh, so they said to him again, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And 
He answered them, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That was kind of clever. He's going, what, are you guys trying to become Christians? Is that the deal? And they reviled him and said, you're his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing, that you don't know where he's from, and yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. He's going, seems to me like this guy has a, has a tie-in with God. Since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out, or literally they excommunicated him. So Jesus heard that he'd been cast out, and he hunted him down and said, do you believe in the Son of God? And he said, who is he? I'll believe in him if you tell me who he is. And Jesus said to him, you've both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, what, are, we, are you saying we're blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, you think you know it all, that shows that you're in deep trouble. If you'd realize how blind you are, maybe you could see, maybe you'd be healed. And it's a, it's a general rule. This is something that I learned years ago about mental illness, for instance. If people think that they're not crazy, they probably are. If sometimes you're starting to suspect that you're losing it, you're okay. <laughs> Generally, it's true. And I, and I grew up visiting my dad in mental hospitals for years and having him force me to say, Daddy's not sick, Daddy's not sick. But since then, I've met a lot of healthy people, a lot of crazy people. And it's basically, I don't worry too much about the people who are afraid they're losing it. I'm usually okay. I worry about those people who are convinced that they are totally sound in their reasoning that they know they are completely accurate in their arguments, that they don't have any wavering and any doubts. I worry about people like that. It's the same way, by the way, with losing your salvation. If you're worried about losing it, don't worry, you haven't. If you're not worried about losing it, the Bible says, better make sure that you're in the household of God. We can't wonder about losing our salvation unless the Holy Spirit's inside us prompting us to that. And so Jesus is basically saying the same thing. You guys think you see? Okay, fine. You're blind. If you realize you were blind, your eyes would be open and you'd be able to see. It's why Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come to start a new religion or enhance the one that was here. I didn't come to commune with scholars. I came for the sinners. I came for those who are sick, who need help. And, and so again, he's driving this home to the Pharisees kind of in a sly sort of way, you know, they're going, are you calling us blind? He's going, oh no, you see just fine, too bad, <laughs> because you could get healed if you'd only notice that you're blind. So then he, come, he transitions into chapter 10, this great chapter that we spent part of Sunday morning in, uh, about the shepherd, this image of the shepherd, and we'll go right into it. He said, most assuredly I say to you, to who? He was talking to the Pharisees. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, 
but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they didn't understand what he was talking about. In those days, they would bring the sheep into town at night. During the day, they'd be out grazing on the fields, but the shepherds would, would bring their sheep in, and there would be one big pen where all of the sheep would go, and there was one guy who would just stay there and guard the door. He would just lay in front of the door, and he was the one who protected it. That way, the shepherds could go and get some sleep. Now, you'd think, hey, you know, how do they know whose sheep or whose once they're in there? I look at sheep, they all look just about alike. But it, it's an, an amazing thing that, and you see this to this day, that when sheep get mixed up, the shepherd calls and the sheep know who their shepherd is and, and the whole little group of sheep just kind of divides into the various groups of the various shepherds. And so that's kind of the picture that he's alluding to here. But he's teaching a lesson about it at the same time. And he's basically, his first kind of lesson that he drives home is you come in through the door. You don't come any other way. He's going to say he is the door, but he can't come in through himself. And so it, it almost seems like a mixed metaphor here, and it can become kind of confusing. You know, he's the door. He's the, he's the guy that comes in through the door. He's the shepherd who calls to the sheep. Um, but he's, he's, in a sense, struggling to try to use sheep and, and flocks to illustrate everything about him. And you go... It's kind of confusing. It's a little mixed up. It's true. Anytime you try to explain God, anytime you ex try to explain the Son of God to people, you're going to come up short. You're going to go, it's kind of like I'm the shepherd and the door and the, you know, it, it's just, wow, it's, it's amazing. It's, there's, it's so complicated. But by saying that he came in through the door, he's saying, I come in the right way. I'm not taking shortcuts. I'm not coming along and just stealing sheep. I'm not trying to rip people off. I walk straight in through the door. This is what happened. The doorkeeper lets me in. The doorkeeper was perhaps a, an allusion to John the Baptist because he was told, it was told that he was going to come before Jesus and announce his coming. Came at the right time. He came in the right way. Showed up in Bethlehem. Managed to get Mary and Joseph there. Not only that, he came into the into the body of Mary through the Holy Spirit, not through the normal means by which people are impregnated. Fulfilling these prophecies, being from Nazareth, being born in Bethlehem, fleeing to Egypt, coming back, in so many ways, everything was just right. And Jesus is going, check out who I am. I came the way I'm supposed to. And then not only that, but he says, when he, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He brings them out, they go before him, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. I talked about this Sunday. The thing that, to me, is the reason why God refers to people so often as sheep isn't because sheep are dumb, and that's debatable. Most people who know sheep say they're far from being dumb. But the thing I think that speaks the most of what sheep are, as opposed to almost every other animal that exists, 
Sheep, you don't drive them, you don't push them, you don't move them ahead of you. Somehow they have a sense of knowing that they don't want to go somewhere unless the shepherd goes there. They follow. Now, they'll follow almost anyone, but when they see their shepherd, they know that's who it is, and they'll follow him. You don't get behind sheep and and whip them with a stick like you do cattle. You don't ride around them on a horse. You call out, you move, and they follow you. And that's the way we're designed. It's why so many movements, so many human movements miss the point of how to shepherd the sheep. Even the so-called shepherding movement that was big 20 years ago and still has fragments out there today. There are some cults that are guilty of this as well. Their idea is, oh, the sheep need to be shepherded. I need to help them. And so what had happens is you have some authority figure who calls all the shots. You need to go to them to get everything approved that you want to do. And there's this big emphasis on obey your leader, obey your leader, follow the leader. You know, but really it's this, it's this pushing. It's this taking away of the will. It's generally leaders who don't want to lead So they get behind and yell and they get other people to do their bidding for them, to pick on the people, to degrade them enough that they don't have enough, you know, healthy concept of themselves to think for themselves. And then they just try to force them to do what they want them to do. A shepherd doesn't do that. Jesus goes on to make this very clear. A shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I go first. And Jesus did that. And if we don't understand what it is to go first in leading, then we miss the whole point of the shepherd and the sheep. But he's saying, no, when my sheep will know my voice and they follow me. Now, sheep do tend to wander off and sometimes you have to go hunt them down. And we do that. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. And they do that. But what does he do? He continues to call out to us. His voice continues. And though we rebel against him and though we may be walking in, in sin, yet Jesus continues to just call out. You hear him. You'll hear his voice at the strangest time, at a time when it's like you would think, I would never hear him. I've heard people who said that they were in a bar, backslidden, drunk, looking for somebody to pick up on, and all of a sudden something happened. They heard a fragment of a conversation, or something came on the TV as somebody changed the channel in the bar, and God just spoke to them clearly. He's amazing that way. He hunts down his sheep, but he does it with his voice. He does it by just continuing to call out. And that's our nature. That's what we respond to best. And so Jesus is basically telling these guys, you don't get it because you can't hear my voice. You can't hear my voice. I guess you're not my sheep. He wasn't trying to recruit them, didn't try to argue with them, didn't try to persuade them to be his sheep. He's like, I'm talking. If you hear me, great. If not, that's okay too. So they didn't understand what he was talking about. And so Jesus, again, he tried to explain it in a different way. Most assuredly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't hear him. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So he shifts and he says, okay, I'm the one who comes through the door. And he goes, well, if you don't get that, look, I am the door. You need to come through me. Jesus said later on in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. People have a hard time with that because they wish there were more options. 
They'd like to believe that somehow the way is broad that leads to eternal life, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, no, it's a narrow way. The broad way is the one that leads to destruction. A bunch of people go that way. So he's going, look, I'm the door. Everybody who came before me are the thieves and robbers. And then he says, and we looked at this Sunday morning, so we'll go through it quickly. The thief doesn't come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. There are thieves. We'll see a little bit later. There are also hirelings. And there's a shepherd. And he said, check out their fruit. You'll be able to tell. The thief is trying to steal, trying to cash in, trying to, trying to get things for himself, steal. Eventually, if you want to steal, you're going to end up killing somebody, destroying someone. And he goes, okay, this is how you know. I'm the shepherd. I'm the one that lays down my life for the sheep. The ones who are trying to rip you off, the ones who are trying to destroy you, they're thieves and robbers. Don't follow them. Don't believe them. Figure this out. Of course, the implication is you Pharisees, look at you. Look what you're doing. You would rather have a guy be blind for the rest of his life than to have to admit that I'm the Messiah and that I can say it and somebody can see. You'd just rather have that not happen. You'd rather be right than to see someone healed. And sometimes I think we have to be careful because we can fall into that sort of a mentality. We're so focused on wanting to be right that we hate to see something good happen that doesn't fit with our paradigm, that doesn't fit with our way of looking at things. And so Jesus is saying, there's a difference between thieves and me. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. How do you tell if somebody's a good shepherd? They give their life. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, being in the form of God, didn't hang on to, didn't grasp to the fact that he was God, but he emptied himself, took upon himself the form of a servant, being made in likeness as a man, he gave himself over to death, even death on a cross. That's how you know a real shepherd. They'll lay their life down for the sheep. They don't it's not like these cult leaders where they live in big mansions and drive Rolls Royces and they've got their people out there begging, got their people out there selling flowers. That's not what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd says, let me go first. I'll check it out. And if I survive, follow me. And that's what Jesus did. Let me go to death. And if I come popping back up, you'll know who I am. And then you can put your faith in me. He didn't ask them to go ahead. He said, let me go first. And again, in any kind of leadership, whether you be a parent or a Sunday school teacher or whoever, whatever God has called you to do, you'll show whether you have the heart of the shepherd based on what you're willing to sacrifice. If you're patting your own nest, if you're going, well, I'll just go a certain amount, you're more like a hireling or maybe a thief or a combination of the two, but the good shepherd gives his life, is willing to sacrifice. A hireling, a guy that's just like working there, but there's a part-time job, he's not the shepherd. He doesn't own the sheep. Well, he sees the wolf coming, he goes, I'm out of here. Leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. A few years ago at the International Karate Championships, there were a group of karate students that were walking out to the parking lot at the Long Beach Arena with their master, with their instructor. And some guys came and jumped them and started to mug them. 
the instructor hightailed it out of there, just turned and ran, left his students getting beat up in the parking lot. Now, that may not happen to us that often, but it's that spirit. It's that idea that, am I going to be there and take this? Or if being a shepherd hurts or costs me something, am I just going to go, let me back up a little here. Let me bail. Let me just leave the sheep for themselves and I'll come and pick up the mutton later, you know? And that's, and that's what Jesus is saying. He goes, there are some people who don't have the heart to really care about the sheep enough that they'll, they're willing to sacrifice, that they're willing to go first, that they're willing to lead by being servants. He goes, this is like a hireling. It's like, is that just your job? Is that what you do? And for those who are like myself who are in ministry, it's a real challenge to continuously remind myself, don't do this like it's a job. Don't just do what's easiest for you. There are some things, there are some times when I'm speaking that I know I'm going to say something and I know it's going to offend some people. I know it's going to rile some people up. Other times in counseling or afterwards, I have to say something. I, I've always been the kind of person who, for some reason, I just rock people's boats. I upset them. I offend them. I, generally, I can pretty much count on somebody's going to be offended by what I say. I really work on that hard, but the thing that I don't want to ever do is get to the point where I just go, you know what, this is going to rub some people the wrong way, so I'm just going to back off and let this happen. Uh, I'm not going to, a classic case is sometimes when, in the scriptures, when things come up about alcohol, and with the men's study, we've been dealing in 1 Timothy. Now, there are are two really safe um, views on believers in alcohol. One is the absolute teetotalism. It's just wrong for anyone to do it. The other one is, hey, just do whatever you want. But the truth is, if you look at the scripture, it's not that simple. And so I know if I teach the, the real truth on it, rather than come up with some concocted kind of thing that, that most people are going to be happy with, eh, nobody's going to be that upset. But sometimes if I teach on what the Bible teaches about alcohol, everybody will end up mad at me. The people who don't drink are going to think I'm being too permissive. The drunks are going to think I'm being too conservative. It's like, man, you can't win. But but see, if you're a shepherd, you just go, you know what? I'm going to have to give this my best shot. And then trust God to work in it. And if you're offended, maybe you're supposed to be offended. But I'm not going to sit here and hold a position because that's the most comfortable one for my audience. I don't have an audience. If the church, if God took the church away and I'm not teaching anymore, my life would get a lot easier, frankly. It's not that I don't like what, I love what I'm doing. But if I start to compromise my message because of how people are going to take it, it's all over. I'm done. I'm not offering you anything. If I stop offending you, find another church. Because God's word is going to offend you sometime. So suck it up and take it and realize that's what we're here for. I'm not a hireling. I'm not just going to make it easy on you. I hope that I will consistently make you uncomfortable. And if you want to chalk it up to that Dave's radical or he's, you know, he's mean or whatever, you know, that's okay. But I'd rather do that than just go, you know what? Things are getting a little sticky. I think I'm just going to get out of this. I think I'm not going to do this. Oh, I'm not holding myself up. I'm holding myself up as someone who struggles with this every day of my life. I'm not saying, look at me, I'm this magnificent person. No way, man. I I struggle with it all the time. 
Hardly a day goes by when I don't want to just run away and just go, you know, I can't take this. This is tough. This is uncomfortable. And that's the test for every one of us. Are you a hireling? We're just going to do what's popular? Forget it. Then go work somewhere else. Dude, go do something else. But as Christians who have responsibilities in our lives, we either have to stick with what's right, no matter what it costs us, or we're a hireling. And, and Jesus says, you don't want to be like that. I'm not like that. The hireling flees. I'm the good shepherd. And I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says it's all about that relationship. I'm in relationship with the Father. I form a relationship with my sheep. That's what I try to do, he's saying. That's what, that's what a shepherd does. It's about relationship. You lead, they, the sheep learn that they can follow you because they trust you, because they've seen you put your life on the line. They will know later that you gave your life, Jesus would do. You know, he'd lay down his life for his sheep. He did it, literally. Most of us, very few of us, will ever be called to lay down our life for anything. We'll finally lay down our life when we're just too tired. You know, when we're just like, that's it, and it's just going to quit working. And probably our relatives and the doctors will keep us from laying our life down when we ought to. And we should have died a long time ago, and we're going to keep propping ourselves up. But Jesus is going, no, I intentionally do this. And it's about that relationship that I have with the sheep, and it's about the relationship I have with the Father. And he says, uh, verse 16, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they'll hear my voice, and there'll be one flock and one shepherd. What's that talking about? It's talking about us. It's talking about the church, the Gentiles, who would be brought together, the, the barrier would be broken down. There's no Jew or Gentile, there's no bond or free, there's no male or female. He's going, man, when I put my body together, it's going to be everyone together. We're all in this relationship. There's not a division. And so he said, I have sheep that are not of this fold. I have those who, if I told you guys right now, if I told the Pharisees, what I'm going to do, oh man, it would be, it would just blow your mind. You wouldn't even fathom it. But my sheep aren't just of Israel, he's saying. I've got more. They're out there. They're my sheep. Now, there are some people who have taken this verse to uh, suggest that there are people who are Christians that don't even know it. Um, there's a kind of a famous clip that's out there, and you may end up stumbling across it on the internet if you look at really um, redneck internet sites and, and they, it's Billy Graham saying on Robert Schuller's program you know there are other sheep Jesus has other sheep who may be they may be Muslims they may be Buddhists but he says they're all of my fold whether they know it or not and Schuller of course got really excited about that um, I think that quote's taken wholly out of context clearly let's face it Billy Graham believes that the only way to, to God is through Jesus Christ so don't believe it when people yank one of these quotes out and mislead. Um, and frankly, I, I believe that Robert Schuller believes the same thing. I, I could be wrong. But, but you know, they, they use this verse, and that's really, it misses the point of the verse. If, if it is to apply in that way, it would be, and I'm sure what Billy Graham intended to communicate is, you know, there are some people that I've died for. There are some people that I've called, and there are some people who are going to accept me, but they don't know it yet. Because 
we were chosen before the foundation of the world. So I think that's what Billy probably meant. I haven't seen the tape put into its context, but just knowing Billy Graham, you know, and the stand that he's taken, I'm sure that's the point. And it is a different application of the scripture and a, and a powerful one, really, to say Jesus is going, you know what, I'm not through yet. Peter said, the Lord isn't slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but he's patient toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so there are still sheep wandering around out there. Jesus said he'd leave the 99 and go after the one. And so it's still true, though I believe this is primarily a reference to saving the Gentiles and putting the church together, yet in a secondary sort of application, it's true. All the sheep aren't in the fold. That's why we're still here. He's patient toward them. He's patient toward the sinners. Now, he's patient toward us because it's taken us time to get our act together. We're not out there hunting down the sheep in the same way that we should be. And so he goes, I'm waiting. I've got other sheep out there. What are you going to do? You going to call yourself my shepherd? How about going and finding some of those sheep and bringing them home? So again, other sheep. He says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Kind of a weird statement, therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. How can it be said that the Father loves Jesus just because he's doing that? Well, it's a difficult question, and I'm not sure I have the definitive answer, to be, to be honest with you. But... At one point, uh, John says, keep yourself in third John, I think it is, keep yourself in the love of God. If we are functioning in obedience to God, we're in his love. We remain in his love. First John goes through all of that quite a bit. And so it, it's, it's perhaps even the case that the reason that Jesus and the Father have their relationship is because of Jesus' obedience. Did Jesus have to obey? Well, what if he had sinned? What then would happen? I don't know, but we'd be sunk, that's for sure. He didn't sin. He was tempted in all manner as we are yet without sin. And yet he had to choose. He, and he says here, look, nobody takes it from me. I lay it down on myself. This solves that, that long question that's often debated as to who really killed Jesus. Was it the Jews? You know, the Christ killers? Was it the Romans? Who was it? Was it the Father killing him? No, Jesus goes, nobody's killing me. And even, and it's true, my sins, your sins, put Jesus on the cross. But it was his choice, it's not us. It's not our fault. He chose, he didn't have to die for us. He could have let us just go to hell. It's not our fault that Jesus died. I, I, I like that when um, they asked Mel Gibson with the movie, The Passion of the Christ, they said, why didn't you put yourself in there and apart? And he said, I am in the movie. He said, it's my hands that you see that put the nail into Jesus' hands because my sins put him on the cross. And that's true, and I love that sentiment. But it's important for us to realize maybe our sins put him on the cross, but only because he wanted to have fellowship with us. It's only because he chose to die for us. He didn't have to. Never asked for sympathy. Didn't want us to feel sorry for him. He's like... And this is what a good shepherd would do. I know what needs to be done, and I'm going to do it. And that's what he did. And he said, so I'm laying my life down. Nobody takes it from me. I have power 
to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. Therefore, there was a division among the Jews because they're going, what is going on here? Many of them said he's got a demon and he's mad. Why do you listen to him? You could say, well, why are you listening to him? You're there expressing your opinions. But others said, come on, these aren't the words of one who has a demon. How can a deep demon open the eyes of the blind? So again, they're arguing, who is Jesus? How do you make, what do you make of this guy? The discussion, the argument's still around today. Every one of us has to decide, what is it? I like the fact that they saw these two alternatives. Either he's somebody from God who can heal people, or he's possessed and crazy. There's no middle ground. There's no option, and C.S. Lewis drives this home so powerfully in Mere Christianity, where he says, you know, he's either the Lord or he's a liar and a lunatic. That's, that's your only choice. And C.S. Lewis says, don't patronize me with all this talk of him being a good teacher. His teachings are too radical for that. He either is God or he's completely nuts or evil. And so they saw it clearly. They knew what he was saying. People today are still confused. Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. The Feast of Dedication was the feast that, that um, basically today is generally called Hanukkah. Um, it was celebrating. You don't see instructions in the Old Testament or the New concerning Hanukkah, and yet it's a big deal to Jews today, and it was to them in those days too. What was happening after the Jews had been all spread all over the place and in about 162 BC, there was, the Jews were under the control of Syria and, and an evil king called Antiochus Epiphanes. And at that time, Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple and the precursor to the abomination of desolation that we will see later on in the middle of the tribulation happened then, 162, 163 BC, where Antiochus came in, proclaimed himself to be God, sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies, and this just absolutely outraged the Jews. They were so offended. They had already been in captivity and being ruled, but that was just going too far. And so um, a guy named Maccabees and, and several of his sons, Judas Maccabeus and several of his sons, led a revolt. And there are those stories that you have heard about of the supernaturally how the oil in the lamps was continuously restored miraculously. And, and through all of this, God ended up overthrowing Antiochus Epiphanes and the Jews got their temple back and took Jerusalem back over. And so this was the feast that celebrated that. It's an interesting timing for this to happen because on this feast, on Hanukkah, the, the leaders of the Jews were really trying to stir Jesus up because their image of Messiah was of one who would deliver them from this. For, in the case of, of the Maccabees, it was, and by the way, that's the story is told in the book of Maccabees, which is one of the apocryphal books. Get a Catholic Bible and you can read all about it. But uh, it, it was, it was this, this idea that we need to be delivered. Now, at this point, you know, 100, almost 200 years later, um, the Jews were under the, under the boot of Rome. The Roman Empire was controlling them completely. They had token power, but capital punishment had been taken away from them. Of course, Herod the Great, who was a, 
who worked for Rome, was ruling over them, trying to be friends with them, and he was a crazy guy, and it was just, it was, it was really a mess. Rome had just been awful to, to Jerusalem, and so they were hoping that someone would come up like Judas Maccabeus and, and lead a rebellion, and so that's what they were looking for Jesus to do, trying to stir him up to see if he would actually do it. And so it's at this feast, it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Come on, if we're going to overthrow Rome, let's get to it. Let's get going. Let's get on the stick. Not understanding, of course, the necessity for Jesus to die. Not understanding the fact that God has his own way and his own timing of what he wants to do. And you've got to let him do it. He knows what he's doing. They're trying to prod him. They're trying to challenge him and saying, come on, come on, tell us. If you're the Messiah, let's go for it. This is a good time to do it. It's Hanukkah. It's the Feast of Succoth is another thing that it's called. The Feast of Dedication. Jesus answered them, look, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep, as I said to you. You don't get it. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They understood what he was saying. He's going, look, are you the Messiah? And he's going, how many times do I have to say it to you? Of course I am. I and my Father are one. And you'd understand this if you were my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. You don't. I know them. I can't figure you out. They follow me, you're not. I give unto them eternal life, and they'll never perish. Now, earlier, as he had said, I came that you'd have life abundantly. That's what we talked about on Sunday, and you can get the tape if you didn't hear that. But again, he's emphasizing, I came to bring life. I came to give you an eternal life, and that doesn't just mean a life that's just gonna go on and on. Nothing would be worse than to live forever and be in misery. It's... It's an eternal life, it's a breadth of life, it's an abundance, it's an overflowing of life that, yes, also lasts forever. Now, in this passage, it sure sounds like it's impossible if you get saved to then lose your salvation. And this is probably the strongest uh, scripture in the Bible that people who believe in what's called eternal security, other people call it once saved, always saved, um, the, the Calvinists usually refer to it as perseverance of the saints. But anyway, it's the doctrine that, hey, once you're in, you can't get out. Once you make that decision, you're kind of stuck. Now, this is a doctrine that's difficult and problematic, and, and I'm not going to solve it for you tonight. I'm not going to say, hey, I don't believe in eternal security or in perseverance of the saints. Uh, because there are verses in Scripture that seem to say it. However, at the same time, I have to tell you, there are verses that talk about being blotted out of the book of life, and that disturbs me. There are verses that talk about abiding in Him. If you don't abide in Him, you get cut off, cast out, burned up. What do you do with that? There are verses that talk about God's sovereignty in calling people before the foundation of the world, but there are also verses that, that say things like, well, Jesus sweeping over Jerusalem is a classic case. He goes, man, how I long to gather you 
as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Clearly, Jesus is saying, I wanted you to get saved, but your will stood in the way of that. And so how do you put all this together? Predestination and the will of man and the responsibility. As many as received him, them gave he the power to become the sons of God. I don't know. And I don't try to put them together. I just make sure that I believe everything that the Bible says. Therefore, I'm not a Calvinist because Calvinists can in no way believe that what Jesus was saying was true, that he wanted them to, but they wouldn't. Calvinists can't believe where Peter says, God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come. You can't be a Calvinist and believe that, but be careful because if you go the other side and you're an Arminian, an Arminian has a tough time with this passage. They have a tough time with the concept of predestination in the book of Romans. If an Arminian, by the way, is a person who believes that, yeah, you can get saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost. Uh, most of the Pentecostal churches nowadays tend to be Arminian. By the way, there are a lot of Calvary, there are some Calvary chapels that are strongly Arminian, others that are strongly Calvinist. They're all wrong, by the way. Because to go to either extreme is a mistake. You have to ignore part of Scripture in order to believe the rest. And I like what someone has said. Calvinists and Arminians are both correct in what they assert, but they're in error in what they deny. Everything they believe, I believe. It's just that I believe other stuff that they don't believe because the Bible says that as well. Now, what do you do with this scripture? My sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give unto them eternal life. They'll never perish. My father who gave them me is greater than all. Nobody can take them out of my father's hand. First of all, I love the comfort of this kind of security. I'm glad that salvation doesn't depend on me hanging on to God. It depends on him hanging on to me. So what do you do? This is fairly clear. Well, not really. Because over in John chapter 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer said to the Father, everyone that you gave me, I've kept. Except for Judas. Except one. Okay, now, the same language, it's the same book, it's in the Gospel of John, and Jesus is saying, God gave him Judas and he lost him. Now, that's an exception. You can go, maybe it's just Judas because, you know, the prophecy would be fulfilled. Well, there's plenty of prophecy about people being apostate, about people falling away. So you're going, now, wait, this is confusing. So if Jesus lost one out of 12, does that mean that, say, one out of 12 Christians can lose their salvation? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. My, my own, and, and again, this is my personal opinion from weighing all these things out. I believe that basically as a general rule, I believe that when you're saved, you'll stay saved. But I believe there are exceptions. The Bible indicates that there are. How many exceptions? I don't know. What does it take to be an exception? I don't know. I just don't want to be one, so I'm going to keep abiding in Christ. And I take comfort in the fact that in my times of greatest weakness, he's hanging on to me. And that's basically what he does. The Bible gives a lot of general rules. Just because there's an exception to it doesn't mean it's not a rule. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so there are people who believe, for instance, that Enoch is one of the two witnesses during the tribulation because Enoch didn't die along with Elijah, which Malachi already tells us. He's one of the witnesses. But I believe that Moses is one. 
There are a million compelling reasons to believe that Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses. The nature of the miracles imitate the miracles of those two men. They're both of the guys who showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's all kinds of reasons to believe it. But oh, what about it's appointed unto man once to die? There are exceptions. Moses may die twice. He had a weird death in the end of Deuteronomy. He wrote Deuteronomy and it says he died. So you've got to calculate that into it. He did die, though, because the angels were fighting over his bones. But the whole thing with Moses is a little strange. But let's just say Moses is going to die twice. Does that make that rule not the case? No, it just means that God allows exceptions to it. Uh, there were several people in the Bible who died and were brought back to life. I know people who died and God brought them back to life declared dead. That was it. They were over. They felt their spirit leaving their body. They could look down and see what was going on in the room, and God brought them back. So now, like uh, one of my friends, Joy Schmelz, was that way. Well, I believe if God doesn't return before she dies, she'll die again, an exception to the rule. That doesn't, it doesn't take away the rule just because there are exceptions. Rules are general rules. So that's kind of the way I see eternal security, really, is I think in general, it's true. I think certainly if you're abiding in Christ, you're not going to have a problem. But at the same time, because there are these exceptions, by the way, appointed a man wants to die, how about all the Christians that are alive at the rapture? They're not going to die at all. So, you know, you don't want to start making big theological assertions based on logically applying a scripture that that's not what it's teaching on, that that's not what it's trying to say. But I believe if we've given our lives to Jesus Christ and we have eternal life, we're secure, we're safe. But you go, does that mean I can't leave even if I want to? No. If you really want to, I think you can leave. But I don't think most people do that. When you really taste of salvation, you realize, man, this is worth hanging in. I, mean, I, could, I can't fathom right now of me ever leaving the Lord. Why would I ever want to not be a Christian? I know that that life stinks. I know how bad it is. I know how blessed I am being with the Lord. I never want to leave him. It's, it's absurd. But there are certain people, strange, rare exceptions. People like um, Charles Templeton, who was an evangelist, and God used him in powerful ways. And, and he says he totally believed the gospel. But he turned away and ended up writing books about why he left Christianity. And it's really sad when you read interviews of him and he says that he misses Jesus. How do you make sense out of that? I don't know. But I'm not going to sit here and go, Templeton has to go to heaven whether he likes it or not. I just think there are certain people that, that because of their radical turning against the Lord, because of their openly you know, crucifying him again, like Hebrews 6 says, you've tasted of the heavenly gift, the powers of the age to come. And then if you fall away, it's impossible to be renewed again to repentance. Now, I would never want to put that label on someone, but I know people. I have my older sister is that way, was a strong Christian, walking with the Lord, knows the truth. She consciously walked away from the Lord. Today, she's a Buddhist. She believes in almost everything and almost nothing. She still knows the gospel. She led some guy to the Lord a while back who wanted to become a Christian. But she doesn't believe it. And she's not walking with the Lord. Is it impossible for her to be renewed to repentance? I don't know. I'll, I'll keep praying for her. I'll run the risk of wasting my prayer. But 
these are exceptional cases. For the most part, in general, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a good rule, eternal security. Once saved, always saved. Yeah, I think it's a rule. But I don't think it's a rule without exceptions because Jesus, uh, just six chapters later, is going to give us one exception to the rule. So I, I don't know if that just leaves you confused, but that's my best shot at it. So the Jews took up stones and wanted to stone him because he was making himself to be God. And Jesus said, hey, I've done a lot of good works. Which one of these are you stoning me for? And they said, we're not stoning you for a good work, for blasphemy. You being a man, make yourself God. Again, it's amazing that people today who claim to believe the Bible, people such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, who can read all of this and still come to the conclusion that Jesus isn't really God. These, these Pharisees knew full on, clearly, no doubt about it, that Jesus was saying, I'm God and I'm a man. That was hard for them to fathom, but they go, that's why we're going to kill you. And Jesus said, isn't it written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. You are gods. I don't have time to do a big long evaluation on it. The word God is sometimes used as judges, but if you go back and find this scripture where it says ye are gods, he says, you are gods, but you'll die like men. The idea is you make yourself to think you're really something. God is just an object of worship. There were a lot of gods in the Bible. There's not just one. There's one true God, one God who made us, but all kinds of people made themselves to be gods. They made little statues to be gods. And the point of, of that teaching is to say that, look, there are other gods. But if you go back and find it out, yeah, you can make yourself a god or you can make yourself a judge. But the truth is, you're going to die. But he brings it up because they're saying, look, you're a man, but you're claiming you're God. And he's saying, look, there are lots of gods. And, and the scripture came to them and they heard the truth. And, and you say, the Father sanctified me, sent me into the world. And you're going... I'm blaspheming. Hey, there's, don't be threatened by the fact that I'm God. You have gods. You follow your own gods. He says, if I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, if you don't believe me, believe the works, then you'll know that the Father's in me and I in him. So again, they sought to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. And he stayed there. And Many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. John never did miracles, but John said, look at Jesus. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that I'm proclaiming to you. So in these two chapters, we see several things. We, we learn about the fact that so often religious structure can blind you to that which is obvious, that a blind person can see, and you as a seeing person can be blind. Beware of the blindness of religion. Religion has a tendency to make people blind. We have a tendency to rely on human structure, on man-made rules, on the way that we're comfortable doing it, and quite often it makes us blind to the obvious. And the Pharisees, that was their case, and may it never be said of us. And then in chapter 10, as we see Jesus explaining what a real shepherd is, 
what it is, what kind of a relationship he's, he's looking for with us, the kind of an example that he wants to set for us. He's our good shepherd. He laid his life down for us. You can trust him. You can depend on him. You're secure in him. He's got it taken care of. What do you need to do? My sheep hear my voice. You need to listen. I know them. You need to have a relationship with him. And they follow me. Do what he tells you to do. Don't worry. Oh, is it really his voice? You'll figure it out. As you follow his voice, you'll see other sheep you recognize. You'll run into other people who God is saying the same thing to them that he's been saying to you. Follow the shepherd. Listen to the shepherd. Be in relationship with the shepherd. Follow him. Go after him. Listen to his voice and do what he says. Don't wait for him to be pushing you. When the shepherd did have to go hunt down a stray sheep, he'd break their legs, stick them up on his shoulders and carry them back so they couldn't run away again. You don't want that. Just listen and follow. As simple as that? As simple as that. That's what the life of a Christian comes down to. Hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. That's it. Let's pray. Lord, how grateful we are that you're our shepherd. As David said, when the Lord is my shepherd, I won't want. I have everything I need because I have you. Help us to walk in that assurance, especially at this time of year when there's, we're getting hit with so much materialism. When so many people are out there trying to convince us to want things that we don't even want or need. God, help us to only want you and to want more of you to seek relationship with you, to, to listen to your voice, Lord. How we need you to lead us and guide us. We do wander off. Tune our ears to your voice. Help us to hear you. And God, I thank you for going first, going to death first, humbling yourself first, emptying yourself first. Give us the courage to follow through the valley of the shadow of death if necessary in order to be faithful to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all